This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston. And today is the uh, Patreon listener choice nomination album poll thing for Volume 3. <laughs> uh, snappy. Title gets snappier every time I say it. Yep. Um, and that choice is Dogman by King's X. Uh, which was uh, nominated by Justin Stanton, I believe. And uh, yeah, it's been an interesting album to listen to over the last uh, few weeks. I had almost no prior knowledge and certainly no prior experience with King X. So it's, yeah, it's been an interesting one and we'll get into that later. Yeah, we definitely will. And um, what I have learned through Twitter and Facebook over the past few weeks is that um, outside of Justin, there's a lot of other people that really dig this album, too, that were very excited for us to talk about it. So so that's good. Anytime we get a listener pick that resonates with other people, that's a really good thing. So I was kind of psyched about that. And, And like you... Um, I probably had a little more King's X um, background than you, but not much. So th- I was relatively, I knew nothing about this album. Right. Well, I knew almost nothing about the band, <laughs> I mean, you know, let alone the album. I sure. couldn't have named a single song or album by them. Um, and uh, well, as I say, we'll get into that later. So before we do, let's do a bit of uh, follow up. So the first thing I want to mention is our new patrons since the last episode. Uh, and they are Stuart Dutson. Peter Ukitil, I hope I've pronounced that right, Augustin Savocha, and Kay Schumann, who I think was a patron before, so maybe he re-upped or something, I don't know. But anyway, thank you all, um, and as always, you know, if you want to uh, help support the show as well, you can go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and make your pledge there and help us keep thrashing. Yeah, and thanks to everybody who not only has joined the Patreon, but continues to like spread the word of the podcast. Like, it's kind of, uh, I've now started to, at different shows and stuff like that, run into people who used to come up to the table about Secret Identity and be like, oh, I've listened to you guys for years or whatever, but are now coming up about Thrash It Out. So there's a oh, lot of metal awesome. fans that are coming out of the woodwork there and are like uh, loving the show. And I think, um, I think we've kind of hit our groove now, you know, in terms of yeah. like what what our approach to the show is. And I think, um, I think that we're, we're starting to find our niche because people know exactly what to expect out of us. So, yes. And thank goodness, you know, not to expect it too often, (laughs) (laughs) but you know what, like, and we've talked about this before. What I love about the time period in between each show is that, you know, it's well documented by now that I like to live with an album for a while. And I would be very stressed out if, we were doing the show every other week and I had to really like, it's just not enough time for me to live with an album before I feel like I can actually talk about it. And so like having that, I, it just, it works perfectly for me. So hopefully it works well for other people too, because it works really good for me. It seems to. And it certainly, yeah. I mean, you know, as we've discussed before, it works for me um, because I I just couldn't do it any more uh, often than we're doing it at the moment. I mean, you know, in time to come, who knows, you know, things may change, but right now, yeah. uh, Unfortunately, this is about as frequent as, as I can manage. But like you say, it does give us time to listen to an album, you know, properly and frequently um before we talk about it which in the early days you know me maybe weren't doing but then of course we didn't need to as much because they were in the early days we were mostly talking about albums that we both knew well already you know things like when we did the the big four for example our very first four shows they were cassettes that we had in our jean jacket already Yeah. (laughs) yeah we knew those albums already so that wasn't really an issue as time's gone on and we're 
both uh, coming up with albums and our listeners have twice now come up with albums that neither of us or at least one of us is not so familiar with. Uh, that's become a lot more valuable. So yeah, I, as you say, I think we've hit our groove. Yeah, and also I think just going back and and diving into albums that we haven't listened to in a very long time, which is another. So in some ways, they're almost new to us again as we right. kind of go back and really dig into them. Like I knew for some of the picks that we've done, you know, like I know I like the album and I know it's important to me, but really going back and spending time with it has been uh, really really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of uh, other things about the last episode before we get to Facebook stuff. Um, uh, somebody pointed out, forgive me, I didn't make a note of who it was, but somebody pointed out that uh, I said last time that China White was slang for he- for heroin. Sorry, for cocaine. It's not. Yes. It's for heroin. And that shows how down I am with the uh, with the kids and how street. <laughs> yeah. And, and the funny thing was, like, I knew uh, certainly over here that is that is definitely a term that's used for heroin on a fairly well, maybe not in today's day and age, but certainly back in the day was. Right. But I think when I listened to that song, the thing that it it didn't feel to me like that's what that song was about. You right. Know well, I mean? It didn't like, feel so, like it was about drugs at all, as yeah, we exactly. said in the episode. And, yes. and certainly not about heroin. So for me, like that, uh, that's why I didn't even bother mentioning that. Yeah, really strange. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was that... Uh, as anybody who listened to the last episode will have, you know, probably gathered, I, I, it was all a bit sort of frantic because I had just returned from the States uh, f- from being away for quite a while and what have you. And while I was in the States, of course, Chester Bennington died, the lead singer yes. of Linkin Park. And we completely forgot to mention it. And that's entirely my fault just because I was so frazzled after, you know, sort of flying around and being on Hollywood and shit. Um, but it was while I was in Hollywood that Chester died. Um and that is that is really sad. I mean, you know, some people, uh, quite a few people, really, I suppose, to be fair, uh, went off Linkin Park in their later era because they definitely right. gravitated more towards being a sort of mainstream pop band, almost, you know, and certainly away from whatever metal roots that they had, uh, you know, in the last two or three albums. And they became, yeah, almost sort of like prog pop or something, kind of hard to pin down. But... I still liked them because, you know, yeah, they were no longer really a metal band, but they were still making good music. As long as you weren't fixated on what genre you were listening to, they were still good songs and it was good music. Uh, And, you know, and by all accounts, Chester Bennington was a very good man as well, you know, like a kind, loving man, but obviously very, very troubled and also a great friend of Chris Cornell. And he, it seems, he took his life on what would have been Chris Cornell's birthday, right? you know, six months after Chris Cornell took his own life, which is just, you know, horribly tragic and ironic. So, yeah, that really is, I think, you know, you can argue about whether it's a loss for metal because of the, the way the band had evolved, but I think just in general, that's that's a terrible loss. It, it, it is, and it's like, it, I, I think it that stuff really, it's shocking whenever it happens, right? But I think in a lot of ways it takes us by surprise because, when it happens with people that we think that we're sort of past that point with, you know what I mean? Right. Like you, you, you know, when you're when you're younger and you're in your teens and early twenties and you're just figuring out life and things feel like they're the hardest that they're ever going to be and things like that. Like that's uh, and especially with um, drug abuse and things like that. Like that's when you, if you're ever expecting to hear about a personality dying or committing suicide or something like that, like it's. It, there's some part of your brain that's like, well, that is a time in your life where that may, you know, those kinds of things seem to be more prevalent. But 
you get to the point where the guy he was in his early forties, I think, right? You know, um, that's right. When, I mean, it's the when that, happened, it's that old it's thing. Like, it's that old thing about the Twenty Seven Club. You know, there's so yes, many uh, right, like, like that for a reason. Yeah, singers and celebrities who've taken their life at or died of accidental overdose or what have you at the age of twenty seven. And so, as you say, that feels. I mean, it's still tragic, but it feels perhaps less surprising. But yeah, a guy who is, you know, just entering his 40s, you know, I think we've talked about this before, joking about us being old men. But one of the nice things about, frankly, when you get past 40 is that you just stop caring about what other people think about you. (laughs) You really do. And so, you, yeah, you don't expect it of somebody of our age. Yeah, it definitely. And again, I mean, those are two humongous losses. And um, it's... obviously just a tragedy so yeah um, it was really is it it felt good for us to have had that episode where we really i think paid respect to that album and had great conversation about it and was were able to have great conversation with the people in the facebook group and things like that um it was nice to be able to um to revisit that because i think it 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 kind of showed you know certainly for us Mm -hmm. as as listeners and for a lot of the people listening to the show like what an impact their music had on people. Absolutely. Um, well, and it was nice to be able to do it without, like, if we did it now, the entire conversation will be dominated by the fact correct. that, you know, that he has yeah. passed on. Whereas it was nice actually to have that conversation without that kind of hanging over it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, in, a, in more positive news, um, I um, if you were on the Facebook group, then you've seen me post about this in the past few weeks. I had talked uh, maybe the last time that we recorded about how, the music store that I grew up with in Connecticut oh, yes. was closing its doors at the end of August. They were having a clearance sale. I had been in there several times over the last few weeks that they were getting ready to close, and the place was super picked over, and it was really getting kind of sad because there was less and less stuff in there. And there was such an outpouring of support for Gary, who runs the store, and for what that store meant to people that he, in the 11th hour, actually decided to renew his lease at this site and continue to run the store for at least a couple more years. And I had the chance to go in uh, and actually talk to him a couple days after they announced it on Facebook that they were going to stay open and people were you know, cheering and everything. And he basically said it is 100% due to the fact that so many people came into the store, posted on Facebook, called, and told him how much that place meant to them. Like he he had no idea that that store was that important to people. And so he has decided to stay open. So we're getting our local music store for at least two or three more years. Which is fantastic. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think it's easy to not realize that a place like that has had that sort of impact and has that uh, importance in people's lives. If people aren't going in, you know, it's, it's the same with independent bookstores and frankly, even chain bookstores, you know, over the last 10, 20 years after the rise of Amazon and mail ordering, you know, there is a reason that so many bookstores closed down and it's because they think, and everybody mourns it, everybody says, oh no, this bookstore is closed down. It's like, but when did you last go in there? When did you actually last spend any money? Because that is the only thing that keeps a store open, you know, good, good wishes and fond memories are all very well, but if you don't spend money in a store, it's gonna close. Absolutely. And, and with this particular store, like he, he's like energized now about like, you know, we, we've been kicking around some ideas about how we can really spread the word more about the store. And, you know, I, I put it Fantastic. on all those people that had gone on Facebook and as you just said, you know, lamented the the closing of the store. Like those people need to get past the Facebook post and get into the store and support the store now because he, he is, uh, 
you know, sort of reacting to the goodwill that was shown to him. Now people need to actually go and support the store because it's, it, it is something that I think for all of us who did live in the area and have been going there for years and years and years, like we're going to continue to support the yeah. store. And like <laughs> on the, on the other, you know, on the podcast that Matt and I do, because we're both from the local area, we talk about that place all the time. And uh, it, it's, it, I hope that he enters a new sort of time period of success for the store. And that really, if this is the last couple years of them being open, that it really is like the best time for that store because it's uh, it, it's kind of an amazing story that in that he was brought back from retirement because people made a profound impact on him, you know, emotionally. Yeah, no, it really is. That's I mean that that's the the absolute best outcome. So thank thank goodness and hurrah and congratulations and yep. uh, you know let's hope that it stays open now for yeah for many years to come. Um, talking about buying uh, music, I uh, want to have a quick rant about uh, and talking about Amazon as well and like independent stores. Right, here's the thing: Paradise Lost have a new album out. Regular listeners will know Paradise Lost are my favorite band, and yep. so whenever they release a new album, whenever they announce a new album, basically, I immediately go to uh, whatever sort of official merchandise site there is and buy, uh, you know, one of the limited edition special edition whatever digipack cd versions yep. of the album and a t-shirt i do that for every album i do it for my dying bride as well my other favorite band i do that for every album as a way of supporting the band i have more paradise lost t-shirts now than i can possibly you know wear in the rest of my lifetime uh it doesn't matter i don't care you know i want to support this band and that's why i'd go to the merchandise site as well to the official merchandise site because i figure that is a way of more directly supporting the band you know they almost certainly get more money from me doing that yep. than me just ordering a cd on amazon so you know all good however this album was released on september the 1st i placed my pre-order like sometime in you know july uh it was released on september the 1st i received it yesterday uh huh. yeah yeah i got a dispatch notice from the merchandise store on i think september 2nd saying it had been dispatched and i was like uh dispatched like is it shouldn't it be here right um now i'm assuming this happened because the merchandise site didn't get stock in advance but that's your official merchandise site you've got to do better than that if you yep. want to you know be uh competitive in any way against people like amazon because i guarantee you that people who pre-ordered it through amazon got it on September 1st, because that's a thing Amazon does. And like I say, I'm not going to stop ordering from like official sources and what have you, uh, because I want to support the band as much as I can. But that is really annoying, not least because I still haven't listened to it as a result. Because, right. you know, I didn't want to listen to it yesterday or today because we're recording this and I didn't want to sort of... I'm the same way, dude. Yeah. I didn't want to shove the King's X album out of my brain space, yep. as it were, you know? I did with that a new with the album. new Arch Enemy. I, bu right. I bought it yesterday and I haven't even opened it yet. Yeah, because I know I'm going to love this album. I mean, that's just, you know, it, Paradise Lost would have to do something extraordinary for me not to like, you know, any new album they put out. So I know I'm going to like it. I know I'm going to be putting it on repeat and listening to it a lot. So, yeah, I'm like, God, now I've got to wait till Sunday <laughs> yep. to, to listen to this album, which I should have received more than a week ago. And it's oh, so... So that annoying. is super frustrating because I, I do a combination of both. Like, I will go 
I just was at Music Outlet last week, and I picked up like the the 30th uh, edition of Def Leppard's Hysteria because I just I haven't owned that album in many many years, and I picked up uh, some new stuff that I hadn't seen before. But yesterday morning, I was getting ready to go to work, and I saw that Arch Enemy's new album came out. So I went on Amazon, and the CD was eight dollars, and I have Prime, so it comes to me within a day basically two days at the most. Right. Uh, and with a lot of those CDs, you get a, a MP3 version of it as well. So for $8, I got the MP3 version of Arch Enemy's new CD, and the thing is you know, on the way. And that was more of an impulse buy for me, but there is an immediacy to that that the sites for the bands need to m- maybe not be able to beat, but certainly... Not Match fall as into this category. As they can. Exactly. Yeah. You know, even if it's like, hey, um, we will send you from the site. If you buy the album from us, we will give you a MP3 version of it. You know, here's the Bandcamp right. link or something like that uh, to, to tide you over until the physical copy gets there. Because again, for someone like you who's buying the special edition, you know, maybe it's an autographed copy, it's coming with the t shirt and stuff like that, but you want to be able to listen to the music. So that right. piece, I think, is where it could be very easy for them to say, yeah, it might take us a week week and a half to get you the physical copy, but the second you buy it from our site and it's available on release day, you will get the MP3 version of it, so you at least have that. Yeah, no, I agree. Because, I mean, the thing is, let's be honest, you know, this album, any every album is immediately available on, you know, like pirate sites oh, and for stuff. Sure. You know, and on YouTube. Uh, you know, the minute that it is released, and often, frankly, a few days before it's officially released. So I assume they can't be worried about piracy because that is happening anyway. So yeah, there's no downside to them for somebody like me, who, as you say, you know, I'm spending a fair bit of money buying special editions and t-shirts. What's the downside to them saying, okay, look, it'll take us a week to get you this, but here's an MP3 download link to, uh, you know, for the album. So you can listen to it now. Honestly, if they'd done that, I mean, I hadn't even thought of that, but now that you've said it, if they'd done that, I wouldn't. E- we wouldn't even be talking about this. Yep. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? It wouldn't have been an issue because I would have been. Ah, oh, brilliant. That's really considerate. And it, yep. You know, I wouldn't be having this rant. And the other thing that you touch on too that I want to uh, just briefly touch on is that people shouldn't feel bad from buying stuff from Amazon. But obviously, as you mentioned, you're you are going to contribute more to oh. the groups that you support. Yeah, if you're I mean, dude, I buy from stuff them. from I buy stuff from Amazon all the time. You know, sure. I'm not I'm not sort of saying don't ever buy things no, from no. Amazon. But in this but, particular instance, yeah. But what I was what I was going to say about that is that so let's say you buy the, the Arch Enemy CD off of Amazon today or something like that, go to the website and buy a T-shirt from the group. That's oh, how, right, because right, yeah. in a lot of cases they are actually getting more money from that stuff, and so that's where you can find other ways to support the band. If you you know if you're if whatever you're listening to Spotify or something like that, if you're enjoying their music some in some way, shape, or form, go and support the band by buying a T-shirt or buy you know, uh, or obviously buy tickets to go see them live. Like there are ways that you can support the bands that you, that you really, uh, enjoy and buying t-shirts is a very simple one. And, I, and since we started doing this podcast and in the past five or six years, since I really started going to more shows, like I buy shirts at every single show I go to. Um, but I also will buy shirts from websites and stuff like that too. Right. So, um, and yeah, that's my, partly my, because we know that t-shirts are really profitable for bands. Like, absolutely. You know, and people will complain about, you know, like expense, the, how much, uh, bands will charge for t-shirts, but it's like, yeah, because that's where they're making money these days. They ain't making it on album sales. No. And they have to buy them in bulk. So, you know, they're buying a thousand of them that they have to, you know, but if they buy them for a thousand bucks, maybe they're getting them for five bucks a piece and they sell them for 25, 30, 35 bucks. Then 
they're making a decent amount of money back on those t-shirts, but in a lot of ways, that's one of the only ways to support them because they're not making money off of Spotify. They're not yep. making money off of Apple Music, um, and they're not making money off of Prime. So so that's one good way to do that. And, yeah. and then you get cool t-shirts too, which is awesome. Exactly. Bonus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's turn, turn it over to you and your Facebook uh, spelunking. So what was the reaction to the last episode? That was the you know Scorpions episode, wasn't it? Uh, it was the Scorpions episode, and I would say that uh, the Scorpions episode is Volume Three's Twisted Sister episode. Uh, ah, yeah, yeah. You know what I? What the general tone of a lot of the feedback we got? Of course, there are you know people like Phil Toretto who are diehard '80s fans like I am, who was just immediately on this, and his, his quote was, "This is the album I point to for my favorite guitar sound." He said it's just razor sharp. Then we talked about that a lot, but I think for a lot of people, this was a case of much like Twisted Sister. I had no idea who these guys were, save for one or two of their MTV hits. And digging into this, even though they're not necessarily my cup of tea, they impressed me. Um, so you have uh, Tony, who said, Another great episode about an album with some great guitar work that I ultimately couldn't get into. Too cheesy for me, I'm afraid. But as usual, some interesting guitar stuff to dissect. Uh, and then he had posted a video about palm harmonics because we spent some time talking about the guitar solo, especially the beginning of the guitar solo on the song Dynamite, which I freaking absolutely love. Uh, and it's a palm harmonics thing that he does at the beginning of that. So people can go and check that up uh, if they want to see what that trick actually was that sounded so awesome at the beginning of that guitar solo. And yeah, uh, what, what cracked me up about that was uh, some of the, and it may have been in that original post was uh, somebody said like, you know, it's actually, it's a really simple technique and it's, you know, it's not, when you know how it's done, it's it's not so impressive. Right. And I and I watch that video and I'm like, dude, that's still impressive. <laughs> it's super impressive, right? And especially when um, I don't think I linked to it, but if you see uh, Matthias Eabs play that live, he, I mean, jumping around stage and it, it's just like he does an amazing job of playing that solo live as well. And you'd think that would be one of the things that they kind of screw with when they play live because it's like, you right. know, it's just not something that they're going to nail down when they're on stage. Um, Let's see. Uh, there was several comments about the dodgy lyrics of this album, which yeah. we actually spent some time on as well. Uh, our friend Scott Hall, who is the sort of number one Metallica fan on our board, said, I haven't reached the actual discussion of the album yet, but I wanted to pop in and say thanks for the now until the end of time invoked Metallica. <laughs> so I think, we, I think we're good now. I think we have our bases covered with that. Um, Andy Larson. It, this is typical of, I think, a lot of the comments. He said, I haven't listened to the episode yet, but I'll say this up front. I enjoyed this album way more than I was expecting. Brian doesn't usually change my mind on an album or a band, but he totally did on this one. Is it cheesy? Yes, totally. But it's so silly that I'm entertained almost all the way through. He said, yeah, the record runs out of steam towards the end, but the first five or six songs are hilariously good or so bad they're good or something. But I kind of love it. Yeah. Uh, Dijon said, great episode, guys, and what an album. I also did not expect I would like it so much. Uh, had prejudice against 80s Scorpions. I like the opening, but second song chorus annoys me at best. He said, from then on, it just builds up each song I like more. Uh, he said, I agree, Now and Dynamite are the best songs, but I like how the album finishes as well. Arizona chills me down a bit. China White is great and different from the rest. And when the smoke is going down, just rounds it all up well. Uh, let's see. Uh, Dan Summers was shocked how much I enjoyed the Scorpion since I mostly knew them for a parody sketch version of winds of change that made the obvious joke. You're thinking it did, <laughs> uh, which again, like you had mentioned that I think when we first talked about the album before we even did the episode, right. 
um, that Winds of Change is a song that I think people who don't know the Scorpions know the Scorpions for. Oh, yeah, yeah. I like for a lot of people, myself included. I mean, it turns out that, as I said in the episode, that I had heard the song Dynamite before on a video game, but I didn't know that was the Scorpions. So, yeah, literally, Winds of Change was the only track. If you'd asked me to name a Scorpions track, that would have been it. And I wouldn't have been able to name a single other song. There were several comments about the bad 80s radio in the UK because the topic came up (laughs) about not having heard certain songs or not having heard certain bands on the radio. And so there was some good discussion about that. Um, Don said, I'm at best a fan of Three Scorpions song. This album did nothing for me, but I did enjoy the discussion. So I think we had a win in that corner, even though he wasn't digging the music so much. Um, Let's see. The China White Heroin comment came up. Uh, Let's see. Well, and just to reiterate while you're scanning through the comments, you know, we've a few people have said that about several albums that we've done. And that's one of the reasons why we do the show. We've said this before as well. You know, it's uh, we hope that even if the music isn't to your taste and, you know, regular listeners will know <laughs> that the music isn't always to our tastes either or one of our sure. tastes, um, you know, but we hope that even if that's the case we can at least have an interesting conversation about it and, you know, maybe make you think about it in a way you hadn't before or just entertain you. You know, that's why we're here. And I'll leave you with Andrew's comment because it sort of sums up what, to me, um, makes me very happy about reaction to an episode. He said, I liked it a lot more than I expected, mainly due to the ultra-slick production. He said, all the technical prowess really pops and the heavier tracks carry a lot more weight than a lot of the other stuff from the time. It only really loses me when the 80s rock ballad slog kicks in, but China White absolutely left out for me as a canny late Led Zeppelin knockoff. My knowledge of these guys was basically winds of chains. He, <laughs> change. he said, I didn't even know they did rock you like a hurricane. He said, but I'm keen to dip a tentative toe in their earlier work. And that, much like the Twisted Sister episode, I try to be thoughtful about the 80s especially hair metal stuff that I bring to the show. And really with that goal in mind is that hopefully it clicks with a few people. Hopefully they have a better appreciation for the stuff outside of what they might've seen on MTV. And they want to dip into stuff because much like twisted sister scorpions have a a discography that will surprise you. Um, Especially like their, their earlier sound this, as a lot of people commented here, like some people didn't particularly like this era of the scorpions and felt like this era was actually going towards the lighter side yeah. Of more poppy stuff and enjoy their earlier work better. So if you, you know, dig into albums like Entrance and stuff like that, there there is some Scorpions are a band that have been around long enough that there's probably something for you in there somewhere. And so they're worth kind of checking out the larger um the larger discography. Yeah. Well, and uh, along those lines actually, I want to uh I want to go through a few emails that we've received in the last couple of months that I've been very uh bad about not getting to mentioning on the show but one of them uh was from chris powell uh, and it was in response to the scorpions show and he says uh great scorpions episode but it could have been taken by force or virgin killer uh both of which i think we discussed mainly in terms of the dodgy artwork on the album covers uh in the episode he says uh amazing episode i'm 38 years old but i love the uli john roth era much more than any other era Mm -hmm. uli is easily the best guitarist scorpions ever had and one of the best of all time and tokyo tapes is a top five live album as well uh and then he says please take the time and watch the video below and he sends us a link to a youtube video uh which is from wacken 2006 and it's scorpions playing will burn the sky uh and he says in my opinion this is the best scorpion song of all time and he sent this because he says 
this live version blows the studio version away, mainly because Uli joined them on stage and tore it up. Um, great job, guys. Thank you very much, Chris. And so, yeah, as I say, he uh, attached a, a link to a YouTube video in the email. Did you watch that link? That I did not see that link yet, no. I did watch that performance, and it is indeed a very, very accomplished and i assume i have never heard the studio version so i assume you know sort of good version of that studio song i will say that it is not the sort of thing that you want to really sort of show me if you're trying to win me over to the scorpions because Uh it is it's exactly what you imagine a band that were big in the 80s playing a uh you know huge euro metal festival are like uh you know it is every every sort of aging euro metal stereotype you can imagine is present, including, I should point out, you know, in fairness, including amazing musicianship and sort of note-perfect playing and, you know, everything is, there's not a drop note in the entire song. Everything is absolutely immaculate. But that's part of of the stereotype is that, you know, every cliche and stereotype you can think of is present in this video. So, uh, but thanks for sending it along, Chris, because, yeah, it's always interesting to see what bands are like live, especially, you know, 30 years on from when material was released in any case. Right. Uh, and then we had going back to, uh, going back literally a couple of months, uh, we had uh, an email from Chris Calloway, who does a podcast called Creator Talks, which I've featured on uh, in the past. And it's quite a long email, so I'm not going to, uh, you know, forgive me, Christopher, I'm not going to read out the whole thing. Um, but he mentions that his premise is that... Uh, he, there were a few albums that we've talked about that he was just not familiar with. And he, he this was in response to the Pantera episode. He said, here's the thing. I was one of those people who never heard Vulgar Display of Power. So when he did his homework for that episode, he says, my first impression was that it was not for me and was perhaps too metal for my taste. Uh (laughs) He says, music that is initially a shock to my senses, uh, a melody, rhythm or technique that breaks the mold tends to put me off initially. Um, however, to his credit, he also says, but I never go with my first impressions when it comes to music. For example, two notable albums that threw me when I first heard them because they were so different, uh, from were David Bowie albums, Ziggy Stardust, uh, sorry, that were so different from Ziggy Stardust were Aladdin Sane and Heroes, which of course are both classic Bowie albums. And he does say, you know, those ended up being among my favorite Bowie works. So, and he said the same is true. Same is the case for Vulgar Display of Power. He says it is now in heavy rotation when I listen to music. Uh, and he also went back and checked out, you know, sort of earlier stuff as well. So he basically says, he concludes saying, through the overviews of metal albums on your show and the track-by-track analysis, I have a much greater appreciation of the artists, their work, and its impact on music. So well done. That, to me, is the testimonial for this podcast, right? Because we always talk about uh, spending time with the album and really giving it multiple listens and things like that. And we've talked about so many albums on this show that give you, that reward you for listening deeper and, you know, giving it more listens. Uh, So that is music to my ears. One thing, a fun fact I will mention, you mentioned Aladdin Sane. That was the working title of Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, uh, was Aladdin Sane, named after the album. Ah, right. <laughs> Before they changed it. That was, that was when they, they used to keep all the movie titles secret while they were working on them. So, ah, uh, right. So, yeah, a little fun fact for you Jason fans out there. Uh, we <laughs> also got, I, I just want to mention real quick, an, an email from Phil Robinson 
about the King's X um, oh, discussion I, I gonna, that we're about to have. Oh, you go uh, ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to come to that last. Uh, so first of all, I'll just mention we had one very quickly from a listener called Robin Hewitson, uh, who says, hello, I'm a listener from Sweden and really like the podcast. Uh, and he has an album request um and uh which from uh the french band gojira and i'll just so because he may be a new listener uh if you're listening robin this is why we do the show that we're doing today this is why we have the patreon and the uh the patreon listener poll thing so uh i'm afraid you just missed it <laughs> it was it was last month in preparation for this uh episode however if you join the patreon uh, one of the things that patrons are asked to do, as regular listeners will already know, is nominate albums that we can uh, talk about uh, once per volume. So maybe you want to do that. But, you know, thanks for writing in anyway. And then, yes, finally, um, the last email that I wanted to talk about was an album about this upcoming show from, as you said, from Phil Robinson, who you had had a conversation with on Twitter, I believe. I did. And then, you know, he uh, he basically reached out to us and said, I love this album. I have a huge amount of information. He's done a very long blog post about the album and, you know, King's X favorite band, uh, and basically sent us over not only kind of a lot of background information about the album, but his track by track breakdown. And so I, I wanted to say a big thanks to Phil. I did not read the track by track breakdown because I did not want it to color my thoughts about each track on the album. But I did read a lot of the stuff um, that he said about just where King's X was at at the time and, you know, uh, the history of the band and things like that. And, um, yeah, I mean, King's X is a band that has a very interesting history, and their discography is probably a lot longer than people would think that it was. Um, So, And they've sort of been through some different phases as well. So it was very cool to... It was cool to see someone have the same sort of approach and passion that we have about a lot of this stuff and got so fired up that we were doing this album that was like, can I share this information with you guys? So that was really cool. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Thanks ever so much, Phil. Uh, And as you say, it's nice, you know, just to find people who are passionate about something like that. Uh, I'm the same as you. I didn't read the track by track for exactly that reason. I didn't want it to color my own perceptions, but I did read most of, uh, you know, the sort of general stuff about the band and the album that he, uh, sent through. Um, and, uh, w- one of the, <laughs> one of the notable things in there, uh, that sort of, that, that amused me was he is quite, uh, adamant to sort of emphasize. He wants to emphasize that this album Dogman, is unusual for the band and that it sounds different from the albums that came before, and it sounds different to the albums that came after. And he says, uh, Dogman is King's X at their heaviest, darkest, grittiest, and angriest. Um, Which is good to know, but it's also kind of amusing, because, like, the one thing, uh, and we'll, you know, we'll get into this shortly, talking going track by track, but I would say the one thing I wanted from this album was more grit and more heaviness yeah uh you know because those are my favorite parts of the album and so if this is the heaviest and darkest they get i think i'll probably just stick with this album i'm probably not going to enjoy their previous or later albums if they're not more like this i feel similarly to that um not because i was wanting more from this album but because to me this is how i want to think of king's x Right. I had had some previous experience with King's X and they never really grabbed me, but this album did. And I was like, okay. And I'm such a huge fan of KXM now. Um, And and I I think 
you know, I was thinking a lot about like, why didn't I get into these guys? What was the reason that it didn't just really grab me? And I think that at the time that I was hearing King's X, which was in the early 90s, I just wasn't ready to embrace their music. Like there were elements of grunge and there was elements of, you know, sort of the alt rock scene of that time that I was kind of into during my college years, but it it was very take it or leave it for me. And so I had heard some King's X. I, I used to be a subscriber to, I think it was the Columbia Music Club or something like that, where you would get like the, you'd pay a penny and you'd get 15 cassettes or something like that. And I had one of King's X's albums. And I think it was the 1992 self-titled album, which came before this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was okay to me, but it wasn't one that was in heavy rotation for me. And so, but I think that more recently, my complete love of KXM and the two albums that they have out, the project he does with Ray Luzier and George uh, Lynch, has made me such a huge Doug Pinnock fan that going back and listening to King's X now, I'm like, yeah, uh, of course I like this. Like, why wouldn't I like this? Like, it, it just clicks with me in a completely different way. But I love the heaviness of this album, and I'm worried about digging into more of the back catalog that is sort of less heavy than this because this is kind of the sound that I really like from them. Right, right. Well, and it's uh funny you should say that because one of the other things mentioned in that uh long missive from Phil and that I, you know, read myself is that a lot of people feel that King's X have never sort of had the popularity right that their fans think they should have. I mean, obviously every band's fans think that the band should be more popular apart from maybe Metallica. Um, but as a Megadeth fan, I feel that pain. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, every band's going to say that every fan's going to say that about their favorite band. Uh, and I would too. However, this seems to be, uh, also a consensus among musicians. They, they seem to be a sort of a musician's band, you know, a band's band, uh, where, g- dozens and dozens of really successful musicians will say they're one of my favorite bands. I can't understand why everybody doesn't listen to them and love them more. And yet, yeah, they've never quite hit those levels of, you know, massive success that a lot of their contemporaries did. And I mean, you know, I'm sure we'll all have theories about why that is. Um, But it is just to put that in context though, like Phil had uh, actually gave us a bunch of quotes. So I'll just pull a couple that he threw in here. Um, You know, as you mentioned, he's sort of, they're sort of thought of as a a musician's band, you know, Uh, Dimebag Daryl once claimed that there would be no Pantera if there wasn't for King's X. Uh, Billy Sheehan of Mr. Big, who I talked about before, David Lee Roth, King's X is one of my favorites. They should have been as big as you too, but life is not fair, but they were groundbreaking. Uh, who else? George Lynch, Doug Pinnock was the benchmark. He comes from gospel roots. He's got the blues thing. He does it all. Uh, let's see who else. Um, ba, 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 ba. Living Colors, Vernon Reed. King's X is an incredible band musically. They have this heaviness to their sound, but they are incredibly melodic, which is a concept that I'd like people to think about as we talk about this one. Uh, Richie Blackmore, I was blown away with the complicated arrangement, but that didn't take away from the melody. Uh, King's X is ridiculous, Niall Rogers said. The unbelievable musicianship, which to me is the heart of a great band. Uh, Charlie Benante from Anthrax. Jerry Gaskill just kind of makes my head spin. He'll throw in these kind of syncopated fills that just always get to me. It's like, ah, God, that's great. There's a song on Gretchen Goes to Nebraska where he just lays this pattern down. It's called Burning Down, and he just does this pattern for the rest of the song and just the way he does it. He doesn't push it. He doesn't pull it. It's just beautiful. Um, it goes on and on and on. 
Glenn Hughes, I love this band because they are the core of what rock and soul and funk is. So as you just said, um, this is a band that other musicians have nothing but high praise for. Yeah. And you're right, but they didn't find the commercial success that other bands before and after them found. I mean, yeah. you know, here you have all these bands that are considered to be in the quote-unquote grunge movement um, that all look at King's X like, hey, these guys were these guys were mostly responsible for a lot of the sound that these other bands got big on. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it is odd, but you know, like, um, that it's whoever that was, that quote said, you know, life isn't fair. And, uh, yeah, that was Billy Sheehan, yeah. right. Yeah. And that, you know, that does happen to, to bands. And this appears to be one of the, one of those bands. Um, what I will say is that they, uh, I mean, I, you know, I've said before that I, I said earlier rather that I wasn't familiar with the band and I certainly couldn't have named any of their songs, but I'd heard of them. I knew that they were a band. Uh, and so there was that awareness at least, you know, they had that sort of, Oh yeah, I've heard of that band, not completely unknown. Uh, the problem for me was that, and I, I'm still, I've been trying to work this out and I cannot work out why, but for some reason I had sort of mentally put them in the same box and this will make you laugh. I'm sure I put them in the same box as dream theater and extreme. Huh? Now the fact that I put dream theater and extreme in the same box is probably puzzling to some people. Well, you know, extreme to me is better than dream theater. I know people just (laughs) threw their computers out the window with that, but extreme (laughs) to me is one of my favorite bands ever. They're amazing. Um, Uh, And then, yeah. And to me, they were all kind of, and what I, what I mean by that, I think what I mean by that, because this is something that it was just years ago, you know, I was like, oh yeah, they're that band, just like the other bands, whatever. And then never listened to them. And I think, as I say, I was a bit unsure, but then when I started doing a bit of research for this show, I saw some photos of what they looked like in the early 90s. And I think, without hearing their music at all, that I'd looked at them and gone, oh yeah, they're one of those prog hard rock bands like Dream Theater and Extreme, or at least that's how I perceived those bands. Yeah. And so I'd just kind of gone, that's not for me. I, you know, whatever, fine. Uh, I think the other thing, too, uh, that uh, there was a lot of people who thought of King's X as a Christian band. And so I think there was a whole section of the music listening audience who dismissed them out of hand because they were given the Christian band label early in their career. They, I believe, at one point were signed to what was considered to be a Christian label, and they spoke of spirituality in a lot of their songs. And I think it was um, one of the CDs, Faith, Hope, and Love, had a chapter of the Bible in the CD insert or something like that. And so there was this sort of – and Pinnock talks about it a lot in a lot of the um, interviews that he's done. And again, I'm no expert on the band, but they always kind of bucked that label because it, I think it hindered them more than it helped them. And, you know, even uh, even a Christian band like Striper, when you put the Christian band label on a band, it is in some ways widening their audience with a certain set of people, but also completely closing them off from another set of people. We had people yeah. who, um, you know, on our Facebook page, I think when mention of Striper came up or something like that, or just, um, are, it's just not for them because they don't agree with the lyrics or they don't agree with the views. And so, you know, the the irony of that is that a lot of the songs that um, that Pinnock wrote are about struggling with his own spirituality and the fact that he was, you know, struggling with his sexuality at the time. And so that 
emotion goes into a lot of their songs, and yet they get sort of handed this Christian music label at the beginning of their career that I think really maybe kept them from being in the same conversation as some of these other bands in terms of mainstream success. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, well, I mean, and it does, because you're right. The, the problem with a label like that, that is so polarizing, is that it, as you say, completely shuts down uh, the possibility of commercial success with a fairly large part of the audience, especially for this kind of music, you know, especially for rock and metal music. Um, and it potentially opens an audience, you know, within the Christian community, but only potentially because right. within the Christian community, how many people are even into hard rock and metal? Maybe Correct. a few people are, but it's not a hundred percent. So you're only, if it opening... was striper would be as big as you too, right? <laughs> right exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? So... so you're only opening a potential audience in that segment while completely closing off 100% of a very, very large segment in the mainstream. It's just like when you say death metal or hair metal, or it's those labels, man. As soon as we start putting labels on bands, it, uh, even you just mentioned like, like the prog rock, you know, sort of, uh, the look or something like that. There's a certain amount of members of the audience who will just go, well, that's not for me. I'm not listening to that. I listened to this other band that was labeled with the same thing and I didn't like them. So I'm probably not going to like these guys. So I'm not even going to give them a chance, you know, and, and, and um, that's, that's almost certainly what happened with me. I mean, again, I'm thinking like, you know, this is 25 years ago nearly, but that's almost certainly what happened with me with King's X because I had heard some Dream Theater and Extreme. And, you know, by sort of mentally shorthand lumping them in, I was like, well, I don't need to listen to them because I've heard these other bands who seem to be similar and I didn't like that at all. So I'm not going to like this band. Turns out, of course, that's not the case, but this is the danger with labels. Yeah, absolutely. And so, but, but the cool thing is having an episode like this, especially one where a listener is responsible for us taking up this album and giving it a deeper listen has, at least for me, you know, um, made me a huge fan of this. Band. Oh, there is no, there is no way. I mean, maybe you would have, but you know, I, I, and <laughs> right. I don't think it, I don't think it's any surprise to people. There is no way that I would have picked any King's X album. No, uh, it would have been KXM show, for me. I would have show, brought a KXM album. To right. This which I know you like, and I've heard, and it's okay, but it didn't really grab me. Um, but this show could run for 100 years, and I would never have picked a King's X yeah. album, you know? <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So, yeah, that, that's another reason why I do love these, uh, the listener nomination things, because, yeah, you know, in both cases now, we've it's forced us to listen to things that neither you or I would normally listen to or suggest for the show. Yep, for sure. Uh, so... I mean, okay, so talking about that overall sound, I would, and I was, I think I was kind of about maybe a quarter or a halfway through my second listen of this album when it suddenly struck me that uh, what this, and, you know, I know now that this album isn't reflective of their other stuff, but what this album sounds to me like, if I had to sort of describe it to somebody uh, without being able to play them, I would say... Imagine Soundgarden without Chris Cornell and more funky. Because like, like, I love Soundgarden, but yep. Soundgarden are not funky. You know, that is one Correct. thing they are not. Absolutely not. But I don't think you're far same, off at all on that. Yeah, it's, it's got that same strange rhythms, you know, odd time signatures, some uh, lovely, you know, strange semitone uh, chord changes and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but obviously with a much more traditional and soulful singer, and yeah, just, you know, a much, much more funky bass player. 
Well, it's funny that you mention that because this was the first King's X album that was not produced by Sam Taylor. It was produced by uh, a guy by the name of Brendan O'Brien, who also, around this same time, uh, worked on Pearl Jam's 10, worked on Plush from Stone Temple Pilots. He was the producer on that album. He worked on, uh, let's see, what else? Vitology from Pearl Jam, Vaseline from Stone Temple Pilots. He was the mixer on Super Unknown from Soundgarden. Ah, right. Uh, Spin the Black Circle from Pearl Jam. Uh, let's see, Plasma from Red Hot Chili Peppers. He was the engineer uh, on that one. Um, of course, King's X, but he also has worked with uh, Mastodon, uh, Matthew Sweet, Aerosmith. Uh, let's see, Neil Young. So he certainly was very, um, you know, prevalent in a time where that sound was being shaped. And yeah. so I think that's why. And actually, there's a quote from an interview where uh, Doug Pinnock and Chris Cornell were friends. And he, he, he was saying in a two, 2016 interview, he was talking about this time when they were recording the album and he says it was an exciting time for us. We had high hopes. I remember having a few long conversations with Chris Cornell at the time uh, and they were tracking super unknown at the time. He said, and we were laughing at each other because we were both singing in the stratosphere all the time. Chris said, man, I start off a song so high. I have nowhere to go. And Doug said me too. And he said, they kind of made a deal to intentionally sing lower on both of those records. He said, so you hear songs like black hole sun. He said, both of us stopped screaming on these albums that we were recording at this point in time. So there's definitely uh, a lot of, I think, shared DNA with Soundgarden, right, right. for sure. Um, but there's there's actually some legitimate, like clearly there was influences going back and forth at that time. The producer was working on both albums at the time. So there's definitely a lot of uh, uh, bleed over. And just in general, he said, uh, Doug Pinnock said, about Brendan O'Brien as a producer... He said, uh, Black the Sky is probably my favorite mix of any song I've ever heard in my life. That mix, he wow. said, He said, oh my God, the guitars, the drums, the bass, the snare. He said, everything was in your face. I love that, and I love that song. It was my dream come true because I'd heard Brendan's mixes for years, and I dreamed about that sound, and there it was. He said, I pull that song out now, and he said this in 2016, to mix stuff against Wow, wow. So some oh, well, high praise for him. And I think a lot of people said that Sam Taylor was very responsible for the previous sound of King's X. And, yeah. and you know, as we, you know, Phil had mentioned earlier in his info dump that this was, uh, this was a little bit of a different take for them. Well, and okay, so let's talk a little about the sound of the album, because this is another uh, album where the sound is crystal clear. Like, it is heavy in places. It's not, you know, it's not a massively heavy album, but it is heavy in places. And where it is heavy and where the guitars, especially, you know, when the guitars are down-tuned quite seriously, uh, it is not, there's no mud. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, there, it is everything from uh, Doug's bass sound to the drums to the guitars. I mean, it maybe helps that they're only a trio. So, I mean, and I'm sure there are some double track guitars on sure. here, but there's not a huge amount. It's not like there are literally two guitar players kind of vying in the mix. Um, and that may help, but nevertheless, this is an absolute, it's a bit like the, um, the first Rage Against the Machine album Yes, uh, in that, you know, it's not super heavy, but when it, even when it is heavy, it is crystal clear. The production is, um, well, rather yeah. the mixing, it's I should say, like is amazing. Yeah, it's like the the music and the instruments are heavy. The production's not heavy. You know what I mean? Right, like it's not, yeah. they're not they're not uh, 
screwing it all up and trying to to add a false sense of heaviness to it. It is literally the music that is coming out of those instruments, and it is the vocals, and it is the sound of it all together. It is not, there's not extra stuff to, um, you know, there's no, there's not, it doesn't feel like they are adding mud to it, as you said. It, it just yeah. sounds crystal clear. You can really feel, you can feel the ringing out of the strings of the bass, which to yes. me is oh, like, God, yeah. oh God, I love it. Yeah, Doug's um, bass snare sound drum, is quite astounding on this because it is really heavy well and one of the things that i read uh that uh phil said in that uh pdf he sent us was that he does this thing he's got this thing where he has a kind of twin uh twin channel thing recording uh for his bass where he records the low ends and high ends are like sort of processed separately Uh and recorded separately and then combined i don't i don't really know the technical aspects of it but whatever it is yeah it results in this absolutely crystal clear sound that is also bass deep really really deep yeah and the two to the two albums that popped in my head while i was listening to this were 10 from pearl jam and super unknown those right. were the two albums that just kept popping just like little little um quick snapshots at a time of like oh that's that feels like this song to me or it feels like you know a part of this or that to me sure. and um and clearly, you know, as we've said before, like these guys were a huge influence on those musicians. So I'm not saying that they're, you know, they're doing anything no, 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 that these other bands are doing. But yeah, that that sound is there. But yeah, the the I adore the sound of this album, and and I'll mention this on individual tracks as we go. But one of the things that Phil also mentioned is that this is a headphone album that you want to listen to with a headset on because of the fact that they use the channels right, left, and middle. Uh, very creatively on this album. In fact, I cannot think of an album that plays as much with left, right, and middle as this album does. I, I was blown away by how many songs use uh, putting the guitar in the left channel, putting the vocals in the right channel, putting the drums and the bass in the middle. Like It's amazing how they sort of pan around and even within the same song will switch sides on you as the song goes later in the song. Like, this album is amazing when it comes to that, and I can't think of a time where it did not make the song better. Like, it didn't feel like a gimmick, it didn't feel like they were um, falsely adding to a song or, or whatever. Like, it just works. I mean, it is, it's kind of amazing how they did that with the different channels. I'll have to take your word for that because I the only time I listened to this album on headphones was when I was at the gym and you know obviously there I'm not right. kind of <laughs> not really focusing on the stereo space right and how do they use the well, uh, you know the bandwidth and I'm not really concentrating on that so uh, yeah so I'll just take your word for that but I did notice it but it didn't I wasn't really paying attention to it it really it's amazing and the thing is like i'm i may listen to the album in the car guy right so i usually take when i have an hour long car ride i'll take an album and i'll listen to it all the way on the way up and all the way on the way back when i come back from you know right. these road trips and stuff like that but it wasn't until i put the headphones in that i was like holy shit like <laughs> it's amazing what they're doing on some so i think for audio files out there i think for um people who you know, would would find something cool about that. Like, man, it, it just it adds another layer to the songs, which I think stand well on their own, even if you were listening to them on the radio. Um, but yeah, absolutely amazing. So, I mean, overall, it my rewards thoughts, that kind of close listening. Yeah, and I, it I totally should, does. I, I should say, I mean, and again, you know, people who listen to the show will know. I I often like a bit of mud 
in my uh you know sound quality and my engineering and mixing and what have you You know i love motorhead i love slipknot you know bands like that where everything isn't crystal clear and things are muddy and massively layered and you cannot pick out individual notes of uh, you know the guitar and stuff uh you know so i mean and that's more my kind of personal thing but i do appreciate that especially for an album and a band like this you know if you're into this band you are probably not into that kind of mixing and production and it wouldn't suit this band i don't think i think that's the thing it's it's finding the you know the right mix and the right style for the band and the music that they're making and so while it's not necessarily to my overall personal preference i really like it on this album because it suits this band and this kind of music. I don't think right. it would work, you know, a really sort of, uh, you know, uh, cut off the top end and make everything sort of muddy and indistinct for this band. I just don't think it would. Yeah. I, d- I don't think it would make anything sound better. Yeah. And, uh, just so, uh, one thing I was seeing from the same interview that, that, uh, Doug Pennick did with a, with a site called, uh, out of nowhere back in 2006, uh, he mentioned the Christian band thing. And he was saying when we, we were Christians, as people, when we first started, he says, um, but all of the records are always me questioning, is this really it? He said, because I grew up in a religious family all my life, and I've always been going, something isn't right here. So he says, I've always sung about what I thought wasn't right, my confusion and my disillusion with it. And he said, and when finally, when Dogman came out, I just spewed it all out. He said, I was pissed at that point, and everybody was like, he's not a Christian anymore. He said, everybody got freaked out about it, but it really... Um, and this is the part of them sort of bucking that label, I think, was just that he, it was always about questioning. It was always about examining, you know, those parts of spirituality that, that you know, that you spent time thinking about and stuff like that. And, and overall, for me, like, that's, this album is very cathartic and very sort of therapeutic in a lot of ways. And it's super emotional. And I, I think everything that I listened to with Doug Pinnock, I'm just continually blown away by A, how dynamic he is as a singer, but also his lyrics just like, and they're not always very straight ahead, but they just, they stick in your head. And I I revisited the lyrics to a lot of these songs several times while I was listening. But as I listen to this album more and more, like each element of this trio continues to stand out to me. The first couple listens, like I didn't think there was anything amazing about Jerry Gaskill's drums. And then on my third or fourth listen, I started to really notice some of the stuff that he's doing and how he plays within the song. And it, it's amazing. Like, you know, so it it definitely is an album that with every listen through, there was a different piece that jumped out at me. Yeah. Well, and I think that comes because they are all clearly incredibly accomplished and talented musicians. You know, I don't think there's any question about that. I did notice the drums, not, uh, you know, be, not necessarily listening closely for all, as you say, all the little fills and uh, paradiddles and what have you within uh, the song, but uh, more just because of the strange time signatures and, you know, like strange off beats and stuff that appear in quite a few of the songs. And, you know, that immediately makes me think, oh, okay, we've got a drummer who knows what he's doing here. Um, yeah, again, a bit like, um, God, I've forgotten his name. What's the guy in, is it Matt Cameron, the drummer of Soundgarden who, you know, again, Soundgarden, everybody focuses on Chris Cornell and Kim Thale and what have you, cause they're doing all the, the sort of showy stuff. But 
by God, you know, those are hard songs to drum to because, like, they are often in really weird time signatures with strange rhythms. And it's the same here. There was a great video that I saw, and I can't, I'll have to see if I can find the link to it. But someone was, uh, someone was doing, like, a drum clinic, and somebody was asking about, like, you know, what makes a great drummer versus a not-so-great drummer? And the guy was using Ringo Starr as an example of an amazing drummer. And he said a lot of times yes. Ringo Starr doesn't get credit for being the drummer that he is, he said, because let me play you a song from the Beatles um, by what most people think of as a quote-unquote good drummer. And he, I forget what song he started playing, but basically he was doing all these fills and he was all over the kit and everything, and it was completely overpowering the song. It sounded terrible, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, right. And then he backed it up and said, this is how Ringo plays within that song. And he said, see, to be able to play what the song needs and play within the song is what makes a great drummer, not... Yep this technical proficiency. And I know that you're a big believer in that. And there's a great quote from this interview that I was just talking about where Doug Pinnock was talking about bass players that are complete shredders. And he was saying, I give them credit for what they do, for what they do and how they do it. The time it takes, the dedication. He said, I'm in complete awe. He said, Billy Sheehan is a great friend of mine. And I think he's such an awesome bass player. And to this day, I have no idea why he calls me his favorite bass player. He said, cause I'm playing 16th notes and here he is ripping <laughs> He said he can play beyond what I can even think. He said, but I'm the kind of person I just want to lay back and groove. He says, um, you know, back when I was younger, it was a different story. He said, but that stuff is all too much. He said, he said I thought, uh, I can't find myself. I just want to have fun. He said, I respect those people. I'll watch them once. Uh, he said, I'll stand there and go, that's awesome. He said, but give me a good song. Give me a good groove. He said, I get tired of just music. I used to listen to instrumental stuff, but at my age, I've listened to so much music I've just settled into what I like now. Uh, he said, um, I've heard just about every genre of music rehashed. I was born in the 50s. He says, there's nothing, uh, he's to the point now that everything I hear, I have heard before. There's nothing that anybody does that I go, wow, this is something I'm new that I'm completely inspired by. He says, um, the thing that impresses me is how many genres you can put together and turn into something else. If you can do that, then you got me. Um, so it was just interesting to hear him say, you know, like he, he's in awe of some of these other bass players, but he is not someone who outside of the first listen is impressed by just shredding. Yeah. Um, okay. You're going to laugh now because I, the reason I have seen that exact video that you're talking about is that, uh, this week's like goes live on the 12th episode of unjustly maligned is it going to be about ringo star <laughs> really <laughs> yeah really wow well i'm glad i brought that up <laughs> and uh it's with andy anatko and andy literally mentions that video he talks about that video in the show that is we recorded it a few weeks ago that is so funny <laughs> yeah it, it is it's just a it, it was just a complete moment of clarity for me because i was never a huge beatles fan to begin with but and i never thought ringo was uh, a bad drummer or never thought about like him being the greatest drummer. But when that guy broke it down like that, I was like, that makes perfect sense. Exactly yeah. what he's saying there is like, well, he, and I, I won't go into detail because if you're in, if people are interested, they can go li listen to the show. That's a, a the show's called unjustly maligned. It's at UMP.FM. And as I say, that episode will go live, uh, this coming Tuesday. Um, but yeah, yeah, we talk about that. And uh, I bring up something there that uh, that I'll mention here because it is relevant to, you know, to our genre, which is that when uh, Metallica did the Black Album, I remember, you remember, you remember the videos like a year and a oh, half yeah. in, the in the life of, I'm, I don't know it word for word, so I'm paraphrasing and I may have the quote wrong, but I, the, I remember very distinctly, there's a bit on there where uh, 
at least I assume it's on there and maybe not in an interview that I read, but who knows, uh, where Lars basically talking about how the fact that the drumming on the black album is frankly, just a lot simpler than, you know, their previous albums. And he says that over the years, he developed a real appreciation for guys who just lay down a solid beat and don't fuck around too much, you know? Yep. Uh, and that when he was younger, yeah, he wanted to hit every drum at once and blast everything. Of course he did. Everybody does. But then, yeah, as he got older, he started to really appreciate guys who just were metronomes and just laid down that beat and filled in the bottom end of the song and were absolutely rock solid, reliable, which of course, you know, in relation to Lars as a drummer is kind of ironically hilarious <laughs> famed I, I think, for his like thousand takes on every song and what have you but oh absolutely and and but, i just it's funny you mentioned him because i just saw a video with the, per, the guy who uh did production on the injustice for all album and he <laughs> was talking about how lars basically came in and told him to turn the bass down to almost imperceptible level levels and uh but you but in terms of his drumming like i actually i think lars is drumming on the new uh hardwired album is really good and it's pretty and, great. Yeah. 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 And not, um, not overpowering the songs at all. You know what I mean? Like I, I feel like he's totally, you know, within that, but it, but that whole point brings up a, a, a thought that I have about King's X where the, I guess maybe the highest compliment that I can pay King's X is that when I listen to this album, every choice that they make within a song seems to be in service of the song. Like the, the, it just right. feels like three guys to me who the most important thing is the song. It not, sounds like there's no egos working. Yes. Yeah. Like it, not like who is doing what or who gets a chance to shine in the song or whatever. It's always like even the little vocal fills that, that uh Pinnock does and stuff like that. Like it all is just like, well, what, what is going to give us the best, truest version of this song? And, and that, to me, it just makes this album very rewarding to listen to because it's it's just um, it doesn't feel manufactured, but it feels organically like we're all working for the same thing here. And there's so many albums that you can listen to and songs that you can listen to that feel that don't feel like that. Um, and so it it is just uh, it's nice. It's like reassuring in a way that you feel like man, these guys are working for the music here, and I I just love that about their sound. Right. Well, and okay. So, so let's start getting into opinions. And <laughs> I actually, in some ways, wish that there was a bit more, uh, you know, some kind of manipulation and you know calculation uh-huh. and stuff going on in this album because I think there is, and and it's kind of frustrating, like hearing Doug Pinnock say those things. And yeah, I read a couple of interviews and stuff where he says similar things, and I'm like. That's great, but then why why do you write songs the way you do? Uh, because what I found frustrating about this album, I, I didn't dislike it. I, I'll say that up front. I didn't dislike it. It's going to stay, you know, in my rotation. And at the end, I'll sort of talk maybe more in kind of summary. But, you know, I didn't mind listening to it. There are a few tracks on here that I really like. But as a whole, the album feels like it doesn't quite, it needs an extra push uh in the areas of ironically melody and the choruses like there are very few choruses on this album that really grabbed me uh and for all the musicianship and for all the as you say the fact that they does feel like they're playing in service to the song the songs themselves 
could all, almost all, with a few exceptions, could all be just that little bit better to kind of push them over the edge. And that's the one sort of overall takeaway I had about this album is that it feels like it doesn't live up to its own potential. Interesting. I I, I can already tell that you disagree. <laughs> uh, to me, like I, uh, this this album made me think about Pearl Jam a lot. And 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 here's the thing: I don't even really like Pearl Jam. Um, I think Ten is probably one of my favorite albums of all time. And then. I have a very low opinion of the entire rest of the Pearl Jam catalog. But that one album for me, I, I actually bought it again at Music Outlet not too long ago um, because I just wanted to hear it again. And I listened to that album thousands of times you know, during high school. It was one of the albums of that era and that genre of music that just uh, will forever be imprinted on me. And I, again, not being a huge Pearl Jam fan, I think so highly of that album. And this album gave me a similar feeling of that. Like this is an album I feel like I could listen to all the time and have in the background because it's just, um, there was something about that Pearl Jam album that struck me on a emotional level. And I think this one is so much like that. I mean, as Phil mentioned in his info dump and as people, I'm sure if they listen to the album probably get like, there's a lot of Doug Pinnock putting himself out there in the lyrics of this album. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the a lot of emotion behind some of those screams and some of those um, just you could feel the frustration and the angst and and stuff like that. Uh, but I feel like they're like, and I don't know if it's just a really heavy album for King's X, but I feel like it's a really heavy album. And there wasn't too many songs where I felt like they needed to punch more. Or um, I do, I feel like it's very diverse. Like it there's is very a couple, diverse. There's yes. a couple songs on here that that could be radio singles, and then there's other songs that you would never hear on the radio ever. Um, and, and like, uh, perfect, like manic depression, great. Uh, certainly from a thematic standpoint, fits perfectly with this album. But also, um, well, we'll talk to that when we get to the end. Yeah, of it, yeah. But we'll like, get to that, but yeah, like yeah. so, so let's jump into the the tracks then. Sure. Well, let's just quickly summarize. So this is a 14 track album. Right. Uh, but one of those is the final, uh, which is a cover of Manic Depression by Jimi Hendrix, uh, which is five minutes long. That's at the end. And one of them is a one minute song before the final track. So, yes. you know, really it's more like 12 songs and sort of like 54, 55 minutes, which is still, you know, uh, uh, that's a decent length, you know, that's a even gr- for... Yeah. You know, it's it's longer than certainly than some albums we've done uh, on here, but it's not. You know, an hour for an album in the '90s was perfectly, uh, you know, average or yep. regular. I don't want to say average, but you know what I mean. It, it was perfectly n- not at all unusual. Yep, and it was released on uh, January 18th of 1994. It is their fifth studio album, and as we mentioned before, it is the first one not to be produced by Sam Taylor. So a whole yeah. new producer coming in on this album. It hit number 88 on the U.S. Billboard 200. Uh, It hit number 49 on the U.K. Albums Chart, number 46 on the Swedish Albums Chart, and number 47 on the Swiss uh, Swiss Album Chart. So, which again, I mean, that 88 on the U.S. Billboard 200, I feel like that is a a metaphor for their entire success in the States. You know what I mean? Like a band that people knew, a band that had... A reasonable amount of success, but never, was, never quite hitting the heights. Never yeah. quite hit the heights, and and um. So yeah, I mean, it seems like that sounds about right for what well, I know of King's X. 
Although saying that, 88 in, 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 you know, somewhere around the era of late 93, early 94, you're vying with a lot of really, really good records there for, for chart places. So, you know, I think that is quite a respectable position, actually, given the time that the, that the album was released in. Yeah, no, right. Like, I, I'm certainly not scoffing at 88 because bands would kill to be 88 on the uh, US uh, top 200 there. But um, but I think it is indicative of that whole, like, oh, they're, it is. No, they're I agree, in yeah. the conversation, but they're not. They're not the first at band the front end of, of yeah. the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, track one on this album is the title track, Dogman. love it uh i think that it is it punches you right in the face to open the album uh it definitely has this sort of alice in chains Soundgarden low end to it that i really really like and from a lyrical standpoint you know again it feels like uh a theme that i think runs through this album is it feels like someone who's kind of a little bit lost um yeah and, and but I lo- I feel like the groove is very crunchy. It sounds big. It sounds open. And there's this great mix of like breathability to these songs, but also heaviness too. Like, I, and I think it goes back to what we talked about before with the production of it and how it sounds clean and stuff like that. But it sounds it sounds big. It has a lot of the same stuff I like about KXM is present here. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is. I mean, you're right. It. It is very, it's arresting right from the very first note because it's one of those, and you know, surprisingly few albums start this way where the first sound is everyone in the band. Uh, you know, the like the drummer, guitarist, bass, and vocals right. are, all, are all present right from literally the first. Right. It's not like a drum the build record. or something. Yeah. Right, yeah, which, as I say, is actually surprisingly rare, um, but it does have that effect. If you do it right, as they do here, it does have that effect of absolutely arresting you right from the start. Uh, and I do, I think this is one of, I have three standout tracks on this album for me. Uh, me you too. Know, my, th- my, my three favourites, and this is one of them, yep, without a too. question. It is very, uh, you know, very sensible to put this track up front because it's a great track. It is one of the heavier tracks on the album. Um, it does have, as you say, a kind of, I would say more Soundgarden than Alice in Chains, but it definitely has that kind of sound, that riff that comes at the, the end I think it's the drums of- that made me think Alice in Chains, but certainly the bass oh, and maybe, guitar yeah. made, me sound, made me think Soundgarden. Soundgarden like it, it's yeah. just, because uh, there, there is, and I love how they'll go from, 
sort of stop-start stuff to this kind of rolling rhythm and stuff like that. They really play with that stuff um, really well. And I think this song is, as you mentioned, like it's a good example of like the the heaviness that they'll go to at points on this album. You also get uh, kind of a good range vocally from Doug Pinnock of what you can expect yeah. from him on this album. So it's a good showcase for like, here is elements of everything that you can expect on this album, which I I, I love that in an opener. Well, and including, as we talked about earlier, as you mentioned, the drummer, I can't remember his name, um, but the... Uh, Jerry Gaskell. Right, Jerry Gaskell. Uh, yeah, including his ability to play around with something that is in different time signatures and different rhythms, because you have this, you know, the main verse is just an odd... I mean, it's very straightforward at first, but then the end of each line, where you get that Soundgarden-ish riff, uh, has an odd rhythm... And then the lines themselves are in an odd time signature. Yeah. And there's a sort of, there's a half bar that plays at the end of the uh, verse. And then, it, as you say, the the chorus is more of a sort of straight 4-4 four, four that it rolls into. And it's all just done seemingly effortlessly. Um, yes. And I, one of the other things that Phil mentioned in his info dump was that this was one of the first records they recorded playing almost live in the studio which is and to I say love that yeah, yeah you know i mean obviously not actually live but where you know the, the less takes and the band playing together as they record and all that sort of thing and i think that shows especially in a track like this because it 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 kind of feels locked in you know it feels like you get the impression of a band that are all looking at one another and all grooving to exactly the same rhythm and uh, i think it's a, it's so much more important to, for a band like King's X, who relies so heavily on groove, like right. groove feel, that is not like a thing that you can fake. You know what I mean? Because it's such yeah. a feel <laughs> thing. So, so it's like it, it, it like if someone's trying to manufacture a groove, I think you can suss that out. You know what I mean? But it feels uh, well, very look, organic. Look at all the copycat Pantera bands that we had in the nineties. Uh, perfect example. Absolutely <laughs> perfect example. <laughs> Who tried to exactly tried to replicate, you know, their groove and just could not get it. You know. Yep. Uh, so yeah, I I agree. I think this is a, a stunning opener. Uh, really, really great track. And as I said, like I, I wish more of the album was like that. Unfortunately, <laughs> but I do really like this one. So uh, let's move on. Track two is Shoes. This is the one that starts with the a cappella singing. There can be but better ways from yesterday's to me. Somewhere there are better days for better ways to be. Sunny days have funny ways of quieting the roar. Is it still a blessed thing to live and live some more? And I'm left with the truth, and I'm right in my mind. Given some of the time, maybe never. So walk in these shoes, walk feel it's the Oh, 
God bless it. So good. Um, that to me is the superstar of the song is that their vocals are just amazing. Uh, but this song also has a very heavy bottom, you know, when, when everything kicks in, um, this is a song where the vocals will drift from the left channel to the middle. Oh, and, I hadn't noticed that. Right. Yep. So it's really, especially when they do that acapella stuff where you get that in just one channel is very cool. Um, and then it sort of drifts to the middle. Uh, this is, a, you know, it's, it sounds like in the beginning that it's kind of an uplifting song, but it's it's sort of, there's parts of it that are very sort of dark and almost like introspective. I, I like where this song sort of weaves in and out of. Um, and, and lyrically, like, there can be but better ways from yesterday's to me somewhere there are better days for better ways to be. Just the whole contemplation of, like, trying not to get fixated on the mistakes that you've already made and think ahead and and figure out what the right path is. Like this, this theme of confusion and of being lost and of, um, you know, perseverating on past events or future events or, or things like that is just uh, almost in every song on the album. And the way that he talks about it, I, I find very interesting. Yeah, I mean, he is a good lyricist. They're not always the catchiest lyrics, but they Correct. are. Yep. But they are always good. Uh, you know, there's certainly there's nothing on here that I think sounds cheesy. Uh, you know, th- there's yeah, lyric wise. I mean, like lyrically, they're always well considered and well thought out. Um, and this is yeah, this is quite a funky song. It's got that uh, lovely sort of walking, chugging rhythm in the verses. Um, it's th- but this is one that for me could be catchier. It's just not as catchy as it, I feel like it should be, especially for the second song on an album and for our younger listeners, uh, you know, we, we have to point out that, um, this was released at a time when albums were still the primary music delivery method. And so the, this is why we talk about track listing so much, because obviously a lot of the records we're talking about are from, that era and uh track listing was so important because you would put either vinyl or a cassette or a cd on and you would listen to it in order you know yes with cds you could shuffle around but not that many people did unless you were at a party or something if you were going to listen to an album you would just put on an album and listen to it and so track listing is important and i just feel that this doesn't deliver what a second track on an album should you know yeah, and the thing I was going to say about the catchiness of it is I feel like what they do, and and I'm assuming this is deliberate, is there are, in some ways, there's a catchiness to almost every song on this album, but in certain places, it's not catchy where you would expect it to be, right. and catchy in a place where you don't expect it to be. So yes. that kind of sometimes gets in the way of you sliding into the groove of the song, because it's constantly playing with your expectations around that. And I think sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, it can take you out of the song. Yeah, no, I, I that's a really great observation. I hadn't thought about that consciously, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. And this song has it, you know, the verse is catchier than the chorus, which right. is weird. <laughs> that's, yeah, you know, that's exactly. Just doesn't feel like that's how songs should be, you know? But I could totally um, see them thinking like, yeah, we'll do, we'll flip it this time, you know, we'll do it this way. But in the execution of it, as you said, for the second song in the album, maybe doesn't 
it maybe just doesn't, it's not the place for that particular piece of right. experimentation. Like you could you could put that in a different place, maybe towards the middle of the album where things generally lull on an album right, and then you right. switch things up and you play with those expectations. And so yeah, I I feel like because the first song was fairly straight ahead in sort of what you can expect, this one can kind of knock you off kilter a little bit. Yeah, maybe a little bit too much. Um unlock right. So let's move on to track three, which is pretend. this song for and it's not even one of my top three but i love it for a variety of different reasons well i and that's it's not in my top three either but i think this should have been track two because this is much more groovy and catchy than uh, you know than what is track two than shoes um the only problem i have with it is that the chorus is a little bit weak uh you know the chorus could be could be better but Overall, as a song, and I like the uh, the bass breakdown that leads into the solo on this. That's really nice. But yeah, overall, this is a much groovier and catchier track than the previous one, and I do like it. I, I think where you are feeling that it might be a little bit not, um, sort of not reaching its own potential is that this, to me, is a song that I would hear on the soundtrack of Reality Bites or in a Starbucks today when I went in to order a coffee right. like it's very um it to more than anything and i think the reason that i probably like it more than this particular song deserves is because this song is so 90s so early 90s <laughs> it is isn't it <laughs> in in its sort of radioish um and not in a bad like it's it's like a security blanket for me like it, it right, brings right. me back to a, a mindset of when i was in college like i i have i i had never heard this song before this album and specific memories popped into my mind of like this particular time of I was in college from 1992 to 1996. So this album came out in 94. I'm a sophomore junior in college. This is this is right in the middle of my college experience and I think what that's one of the reasons that this album um feels so comfortable to me. Um but this song to me is is probably their most mainstream song maybe the first or second most mainstream song in the album in terms of a song that you would hear on 90s sort of alt-rock radio. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, you might be right. It certainly, as you say, if I walked into a Starbucks and this was playing, I wouldn't blink. It would not, you know, sort of sound unusual or odd in the slightest. But like lyrically, I mean, like he's saying, I just indulge myself in sorrow singing blues but then i have to laugh because that's an outlet too like there's there's great lyrics here um it reminds me a little bit 
of Armored Saints, the sound on their La Raza album a few years ago, which was it came before when Hands Down, but it was very sort of contemplative and, and sort of reflective right. and stuff like that. And I do, I love that. Um, and I love the sort of rolling bass line. There's a part in the song about two minutes and 20 seconds in where you get sort of just sort of the, the bass line in and of itself. And the bass the solo, breakdown, yeah, that's really good, yeah. The solo is in the left channel in this song, the rhythm guitar in the right, and then it blends to the middle. So this ah. is another song where that element of the production, again, which feels organic to the song. Like I, that's, that's the thing about the sort of the, the sort of playing with the channels and the panning around and stuff like that is it, it always feels organic, like, and it's, it's kind of awesome in that way. So that absolutely adds another sort of element. And then, you know, the, the background vocals and, and the harmonies are just amazing. Yeah, the right. And we should point out that the, I gather anyway, that the vocals aren't all Doug Pennick, that the other two guys do actually do backing vocals and harmonies as well. So it is when you get to those harmonies, you are often, I don't know specifically on this track, but throughout the album, quite often when you'll get to those harmonies, you are hearing the whole band singing. It's not just Doug multi-tracking his vocals yeah and if i'm not mistaken and i know our king's x fans will correct us if we are but i believe that on previous albums ty Tabor did a lot of singing as well and this was the first album where doug pinnock was really uh completely taking the lead on all of the songs but all three of them are credited with vocals and and i agree i mean even listening in headphones it sounds like there are different voices that are that yeah. are um sort of working together there but they do work together very well. Oh, they are uh, they are very good harmonies, as yeah. you say. I would yeah, say that's yeah. easily one of their strengths as a band is their their vocal harmonies. Right. Well, and I mean, we haven't talked much about Doug as a vocalist, uh, you know, as a singer, I should say. And he is, like you said, he's got a real range. He can he can clearly sort of you know sort of scream and shout with the best of them uh, and do you know kind of like blues howling. But he can also do low and sort yep. of like you know deep soulful stuff and he can do kind of light um i mean this track being particular isn't necessarily the best one to <laughs> pause and talk about this. but there is but a he, sort of a light feel to the flow of the vocals and i do feel like you're absolutely right like he he is very dynamic and has just uh can kind of hit to all fields and i i feel like as a band like they all kind of do that on this album but i i adore his vocals and it's one of the reasons that i love kxm so much yeah, yeah, he is, uh, you know, absolutely an outstanding vocalist. I mean, yeah, they're all outstanding musicians, as we say, but his vocals are definitely worth, you know, sort of people well, listen to the album and just focus on his vocals yes. and you'll realize, as you say, how dynamic he is and how versatile he is. It's like when we talk about um, Cookie Monster vocals, right, and how some some uh, singers are sort of faking it and some singers are kind of organically right you know being able to emote through that type of vocal and this is a guy who when you listen to doug pinnock sing nothing feels fake about the way he sings like he is yeah. coming from a very emotional place in everything he sings and i, I just I, I love that it just and yeah. it, it lends a genuineness to the music well and again you know nothing none of his vocals on this album sound like he's doing something that he doesn't know how to do that's maybe a bad way of phrasing it, but I think you know what right. I mean. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, as I say, extraordinary. He knows vocalist. exactly what his range is, and he knows exactly and uh, how to use it. Yeah, yeah, his different deliveries and stuff like that. And the other thing too is, like with those vocal harmonies, I don't feel like they overuse them. 
Uh, in some cases, they may even underuse them, but I feel like in most places where they choose to add those layers in, it it adds to the song. Yeah, I would agree. I agree. Uh, you know, I know a lot of metal fans aren't keen on double tracks and multi-track vocals and harmonies and stuff, but I think used well, you know, used in the right places, they can be really effective, and they are here where they choose to use them. Um, so track four, uh, moving on, track four is Flies and Blue Skies. There's a Yeah, this this one slows things down. Right, this is kind of like the first quasi ballad, really, isn't it? A little yep. bit early on the album to be doing a ballad for my taste, but you know. <laughs> right, I think you could have flipped this with the next song, maybe. Right, and, maybe, yeah, and yeah. it might have been a better place to have that. This one, um, the background vocals are panned to the left, and then they sort of have this feel where they're sort of in two different places at once. It's really kind of cool. There's also these sort of subtle keyboards in the background too, that I think do a nice job of creating the atmosphere for this song. But this is just a, this is definitely a um, departure from what we've heard so far. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, most of this, it just kind of like washes over me to be honest, because it's, I mean, even the, the, the riff as it were, isn't that, interesting because it's just it's the standard do 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 right, do, right, right. Do, do, do which everyone learns to play you know it's one of the first things you learn to do on a guitar um you know that in itself isn't very interesting uh the lyrics are good again um what i do like is uh what happens when he sings there are flies and blue skies uh all of a sudden then you get almost like a key change when his voice goes up and everything rises up with him. Yes. And it, it's just kind of unexpected because nothing yep. in the song previous to that has suggested that that's going to happen. Um, it's a bit noodly uh, as well for my tastes. It's, yeah, you know. Um, oh, one other thing I did like about it, though, is that the ah sound, uh, you know, again, the harmonies, uh, actually does sound a bit Alice in Chains. That really, really reminded me of the uh, Staley Cantrell harmonies on... Uh, a lot of Alice in Chains tracks, Which, so that was nice. I agree with you, and I think that's what makes bands of this era stand out from other bands from this era, is that when they were able to add those melodies and those vocal harmonies and things like that, that's one of the things I loved about Alice in Chains. Right. Yeah, right. They were a, a, quite a heavy band, but they weren't afraid to have some nice vocal harmonies in there as well. Right, because there's a lot of bands that did the whole stripped down thing and, and just played heavy and stuff like that, and uh, there's something missing, and I think it's that. Yeah, well, it's time and a place. I mean, you know, you wouldn't want it on 
Pantera, you know, you wouldn't want those sorts of vocals on a uh, vulgar display of power. But yeah, for something like this or on an Alice in Chains album, they they fit. You know, sure. again, again, it's about being appropriate to the the music that you're making and the song, you know, within the sort of genre that you're working in, but also the actual individual song. So yeah, I, I think that, as I say, this song isn't one of my favourites at all, but there are, it has at least a couple of nice bits in it that made me appreciate it. Yep. Uh, and then from there to track five, which is Black the Sky. Maybe the best song on the album. Oh, in my really? Opinion. I freaking love the song. Actually, there is one more song that would compete with this for me, but I love everything about this song. I love the groove. I it has a Rage Against the Machine feel a little bit to me. Um, Pinnock's vocals, and then the, the way the bass drives the song. Like I, I love it, and I, I love like the dead stop at a minute and fifteen seconds, and then they sort of reset things. Like I. I love the push-pull nature of this song, um, and it's got a real heavy element to it, too. So, yeah, this this to me is like, even though I might have flipped Flies and Blue Skies with this for the purposes of the previous song, like, I like the fact that this is kind of at the point that it is, because this is generally where you start to get the lull in the middle of an album, and this, to me, is anything but that. Well, although we're only on track five out of 14, so we're That's a long true. way from <laughs> from the middle yet. <laughs> we're about a third um, of the way through, I guess. Yeah. I, I do like this one generally. Uh, I love the the really kind of crush-heavy semitone riff when he starts singing Just One Day, Just One Second. Yes, so uh, good. Yeah, I, I know, and I mean, that is very uh, traditional grunge, if you like. Um, you know, that does sound like Soundgarden or Alice in Chains very much. But again different guitar tone to those bands because much much cleaner um but yeah that's a really nice bit i wish there was more of that in general on this album because they do that a few times and every time they do it i'm like yes that's really nice and then it goes away and they don't do it again it's like slayer guitar solos um and uh yeah the chorus on this one as well is much better than some we've had like so Uh, good but also the De- whole, like the lyrics too, like just one day, just one second, maybe just a minute, feel no pain. Like just the kind of begging nature of like, can can I just freaking catch a break here? That I think is just driven home by the way he delivers that, you know? Yeah, I suspect, and I wouldn't necessarily have known this if I hadn't done the research, but now knowing that uh, Doug Panicki is gay, I suspect that this song, that you, if you read the lyrics in that context... I think it seems at least, I don't want to be prescriptive, but it seems quite clear that this song is about him struggling with the fact that at the time he was a closeted gay man. 
Um, yeah, really, again, really good lyrics, very well considered, uh, and very kind of, as I say, if you look at them in that context, quite like, you know, emotional and revealing, actually. You also get the guitar solo in the right channel and the bass in the middle, which again, like you could have put the bass in the left, but they put the bass in the middle. And I, that right. like is so cool the way that that sounds together. And then of course the way they drive it home at the end with, huh, and just really, uh, just sort of dive headfirst into the groove at the end what, of the song. What, I and, really and it's like that, that riff. That's that riff that I was talking about. Yeah. yeah when they start with that. That's I love that riff. So good. <laughs> so good. Uh, yeah. It just like, it resonates in your core, you know, like it's just, uh, it's good. It's like one of the few genuine headbanging moments on this record. I would say. Yeah. Like that's a song that you're like, God, I would love to see them play that live. You know, because yes. you can just see people like throwing their hands in the air at the end of that song and them really kind of driving it home with the audience. So, yeah, great. I really like that tune. Speaking of playing live then, okay, uh, let us move on to track six, which is Fool You. So I listen, tried my best just to understand. I feel like this is probably, and I don't know because I'm, you know, I'm not uh, a mega fan and I've never seen them live, but this feels like it would be one of their live staples. Uh, this feels like, I, I love, I like this track a lot. It has a great chorus, um, but there is a bit at the end when the instrumentation doesn't quite drop out, but it, it minimizes and he's singing. And I think it might be multi-tracked. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's singing, walk in the big parade, learn just what to say, you know, the, the, but he's, yeah. it's almost like it's just his vocals and the drums. And that feels like a real sing along opportunity. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, that made me think, I wonder if this is a song they play live because if they don't, I feel like they should. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I could imagine myself singing along to this at a gig. Do you know what I mean? And this one is where, uh, this is another one where they play with the channels where you got the rhythm guitar in the left channel to begin with. Um, and they, they, like, I feel like in the song, they just switch really seamlessly between crunch and melody, you know? And yeah, I like the fact that it feels like from a, from the way he delivers his lyrics and just the lyrics themselves, like you're, it, it, the songs just feel very conversational to it's like you're listening to him tell you stories you know what i mean and it just like that draws me into even the songs that maybe from a musical standpoint aren't like my favorite on the album i uh, it just feels like you're you're having conversations with this guy 
Yeah, well, or that he's telling you stories, yeah. Yeah, but- exactly, like, or, or you're sitting around listening to him kind of hold court and tell stories. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, as I say, I don't, I don't honestly have a lot more to say about this track because I just, I like it. It's, it is catchy. It's one of the catchier songs on the album, which I appreciate. And yeah, I just think, as I say, it has a, a great chorus and one of the few songs on this album that I can genuinely say I have sung along to and, you know, thoroughly enjoyed. So yeah, good track. Uh, and it is followed by track seven, Don't Care. Which to me has a real bluesy feel to the main riff, and it, it this is another song that has kind of a push pull to it that I I kind of like, and and to me I took away from it that he's just so, he's so disillusioned with everything, with life, with you know um, the church, with the music, <laughs> with the church, with the music industry, you know, and he's like trying to, he's tr- almost in some ways trying to give himself, trying to snap himself out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, this this is, unfortunately for me, this one's a disappointment. Again, lyrically, I think the lyrics are great. Uh, and it has, the, the opening bars are really promising. But from that point on, nothing about this song sticks with me. Like five minutes after I've listened to it, you know, ask me to sure. sing a line from it and I can't remember a single note. Uh, and it's almost, having listened to it a few times, trying to figure out what's going on with that, like why I have that reaction. I think it's because there's almost too much going on in terms of like all the different parts and all the different rhythms and melodies and riffs. And none of it is distinctive enough from any other part of the song to really sort of stick in my brain. It just doesn't, you know, it doesn't snag. Nothing gets its hooks in me and makes me sort of remember it. Which is a shame because as you say, lyrically, it's a, it's a really good song. Musically, it just does nothing for me. Yeah. I have some of the least amount of notes on the songs on this particular one. So like, I didn't dislike it. Um, I do like the way the song ends. I feel like the, the end of the song and the sort of, it ends in sort of a very confused and sort of lost state, um, that drives home that push pull feel of the song to me. And the sort of rolling bass line and the drums at the end, like I, I do in the scream sort of looping. I like the way that it ends, um, but that's the most, that's the biggest compliment I can get, give it is that the end of the song is great for me. Right. Which is, yeah. <laughs> Which is not, not uh, you know, uh, that's not necessarily where you, you know, it, it, it's like, uh, it's like eating the icing, but not the cake. Right, it's not the greatest compliment you can give, is it? Um, All right, so let's move swiftly on then to track eight, and that is Sunshine Rain. Sunshine Rain 
this one again like from a lyrical and an emotional standpoint it it feels like a tired and sort of broken and suffering guy um and you know the the whole idea of like growing through pain um i feel like his emotion drives this entire song it has a great contrast and it, it's almost like to me where he was lost in the previous song of like don't care this is the one actually that I felt more like he was reminding himself. He was trying to give himself almost like a pep talk. You know what I mean? About uh, right. that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, it's in the lyrics, it takes a, uh, it takes time. A friend of mine who's fallen down a million times told me, he said, feelings never go away. away. You have to learn to live this way and keep yourself alive. That's what he said. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, falling down and picking yourself back up or getting lost and reminding yourself about what's important. And so like the, the whole album is just such like clearly the struggles that were going on in his life and, and where they were at musically as well as he, where he was at sexually, as well as the labels that they were trying to get rid of as a band. Like, as he said in that interview that we quoted in the beginning of the album, um, like he just put it all out there on this album. Oh, yeah. he, each one of these, you're, you're sort of, you are listening to the struggle. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, this is another one where lyrically, I think it's really strong, but musically, I mean, it's another sort of semi-ballad. And this and the track before it, for this for me is the slump, which is almost exactly the halfway, like tracks seven and eight for me are the slump of the album because they just don't, musically, they do very little for me and I just kind of lose interest. Well, so the question maybe becomes at this point, you know, for an album that is 14 songs, could we have trimmed it down to 11? Oh yeah, or, I think so. I think you, know, you could, and, I think you could lose track seven and eight and you know, I mean, cause they're not bad tracks. This is the thing I, I don't want, right. you know, I don't, it's not like I, Oh God, this is horrible. I want to turn it off. They just don't grab me at all. My mind just kind of slides over them. Um, and given the length of the album, yeah, I think you could lose these two tracks and you know, you wouldn't miss them necessarily. Right. So then we get to track nine, which is Complain. And this song to me, what was the other song that I felt like it was? This is one of the more straight ahead rockers, I think, on the album. And I really like this song, but it has a lot more energy. Yeah. 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 But, but as where they're, they have much more of an experimental feel on all of the other songs. Like this one is pretty straight ahead. You know, it's got power chords, it's got a traditional solo, it's got a catchy chorus. Like it, this, this is, and it's three minutes and 20 seconds long. So it is, um, it's pretty straight ahead, but I like it. I like the song. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is definitely better than, uh, than the last couple of tracks has a lot more energy. Uh, yeah. A better chorus. Again, the chorus feels like it could be stronger. Um, but you know, but it's okay. It's yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a straight ahead rocker and it's pretty good in that respect. Uh, but again, lyrically 
really strong. Really, right. But really not as um, emotionally heavy as the previous songs that we've gotten no, to this point. True. So, no. so it's kind of a palate cleanser in that it's a straight ahead rocker. It's more up tempo, uh, and the lyrics are catchy. The chorus is catchy, um, but it sort of clears the board a little bit from what we've been in the last sort of few songs. And it starts a stretch of basically like three, uh, maybe even four songs that are that are much. I think heavier, much stronger. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually uh, you mentioned him earlier, Dan Summers, uh, when I, <laughs> when we mentioned on Twitter just before recording that we were about to record this episode, he, he said that complain should be Twitter's theme song. Oh, for <laughs> which, sure. The entire internet, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I think is, yeah, kind of, you know, well observed, uh, because it is, I mean, yeah, the lyrics are fairly straightforward, but they are good. And, you know, it is a point I think that, uh, sometimes need to be made, uh, repeatedly sure uh, that, it's just easier you know, to complain about stuff than to do anything about it exactly so much easier and uh that's something that i find very frustrating so it's glad to know that uh, good to know that other people do as well <laughs> yes and apparently so, in 1994 was also right. just as true then <laughs> plus a change <laughs> yeah uh so moving on as you say this starts a run of like quite strong tracks so let's go to track 10 which is human behavior What's on your mind? Give you some of mine. So the breaks don't come so easy. Hesitate and fall asleep. Which feels very Soundgarden-y to me. Oh, you know, maybe. I'm not sure. This is this is my favorite track oh, on the it? album. Yeah, yeah. I really, really like this track. And maybe that's why. Maybe subconsciously it kind of sounds a bit like Soundgarden. But yeah, this, I, I, absolutely, this is for me is the top track on the album. Uh, I like the, the offbeat rhythm in the verse. Sure. The chorus. The chorus is catchy as hell. Uh, and I think is a good example of something I've mentioned before that you don't necessarily need to be overly melodic. You don't need tons of notes in order to be catchy. Uh, you know, they're not the same thing. Uh, I think this is a really catchy chorus, even though, you know, it is kind of more rhythmic than musical. Um, the lyrics are great. The main line, you know, so the crime we find is just human behavior. Yep. What a great line. Yep. Love that. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and <laughs> I had a sort of, I, on my God knows what, you know, like doesn't listening to it or something, I suddenly realized towards the end as well, especially when it becomes, they're just kind of like repeating and playing the music, playing the main riff over and over. And I suddenly realized, you know what? This could almost be a late era motorhead track. I could see that. Yep. Yeah. 
Uh, and I think, again, that's maybe one reason why, for me, this track really stands out as an excellent track on the album. And the backing vocals in the chorus are like just a little bit offset and sort of layered below. Like it, there's the, it, it, it's really neat the way they, the way that particular part of the song is mixed. But yeah, I, to me, this, this song fits perfectly with the sound of that era. Like this yeah. is just, just slots in perfectly to that time. And, and it's a great tune. It really is. Yeah. As I say, like my favorite on the album and you know, one of those top three that I mentioned at the start, um, <clears throat> excuse me and the last track of its kind in a sense uh on the album because then we go to track 11 which is cigarettes <laughs> which might be my favorite song on the album. I had a feeling it might be, actually. Yep. Yeah. Uh, lots of stuff going on in this one. I like this the sort of simple but emotional guitar line that's woven through it. The guitar actually starts in the left channel, the bass and drums are in the middle, and the vocals are in the right. So right off the bat, it had me with that sort of mix. Um, again, it feels like a very lost and lonely song. You know, you're going through the motions. You don't, you, you're not even really knowing what to talk about and what to how to carry on conversations with people. You're sort of looking for direction in other people. And again, this is just my take on it without even really diving deep into the lyrics of it. That's what it, it, it kind of um, made me think about in his lyrics when he says, sometimes I think the pain blows my mind. Uh, just that despair, you know, just um, it's just crazy. And then it, later on in the song, the vocals and the guitar switch sides, switch channels. So oh, wow. the way you start the song, which just lends to, again, when you're talking about a song where you're you're lost and you don't know sort of which way is up and stuff, and then you flip what you can expect from the guitar and the vocals in terms of the audio channels, like that was that was great. So top to bottom. And this is the, probably the longest song on the album at almost six minutes. I think so, um, yeah. But I love it. Well, and, and it feels... It feels like it should be. There's something... I mean, this is not one of my favorite tracks on the album, but it's fine. You know, I like it well enough. Yep. Um, but it has that feel of... Uh, it, you know, it feels like a guy wandering rain-soaked streets at midnight. Yes. You know, it's just got that kind of mournful, oh, whoa, uh, feel. And it, it, everything slows down. And, you know, this is a it, slow song. And, and like yeah, the it, half-hearted 
kind of bullshit conversations that you have with people sometimes when you don't even really know what to yep. talk to them about. You know, like I, I just feel like he captures those. He he does a really good job of sort of evoking that imagery through his lyrics. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so I think it's fitting that this is the longest track on the album because it, it feels like it needs to be in order to get across the mood that it's clearly seeking you know and i think right. it does that very well like i say not one of my favorite tracks but i think it does they clearly had a plan you know what this track was meant to evoke and i think it succeeds in doing that so in that respect you know it is good well and he got that time back on the next song which is right Go and to that's Hell. the thing yeah exactly it leads the, the, and i think that's that's a that's a good example of uh really canny track listing yes is that you go totally from the, agree the long slow reflective mournful track you know and long track into track 12 go to hell Which is just over a minute long, I think. Yep. It's like one minute, two seconds or something. Yeah. Uh, and and I really like. and Pure punk. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say this is one of my top three just because it's so short. <laughs> right. It, it barely even counts as a track, but it is really good. And talk about on-the-nose lyrics. I don't want to go to hell. Nobody <laughs> in their right mind wants to, but very few people have done the things they have to do to get to the promised land. Like Right. And that's the entire lyrics for the song. And what, that's what the, great lyrics. Yeah, that's the frustration. So that that is really good. And and again, kind of another palate cleanser, right? Because then you get to uh, song 13, which is Pillow. To me, I feel like, uh, and this is where I kind of was a little bummed that Manic Depression came after it, because I feel like this is a great finisher. Yes. I really like this as a finishing song. Heavy, sludgy, grungy. Um, it just like t- is a great culmination of everything that we've heard before, I feel like. Yeah, this is my other favorite track on the album. This is in my top three, along with Dogman and Human Behavior. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and it's the only track where they sound a bit sludgy. It's the yeah. only track that has that kind of feel. Yep. But you're right, it feels like... I mean, they could have ended with cigarettes. That could yep. also be I, an I ending totally track. I totally agree. Absolutely. Um, but if you're not going to end with that, then yes, ending with this instead is... 
absolutely the right choice. It feels like an ending track. It is lovely and like slow and low, which obviously, you know, falls under my sort of just personal preferences. Um, and is also just really good. Again, great catchy chorus, yep. which, you know, you don't always get in sludgy songs, but you can, and they show that they can do it. Um, great lyrics. I have no idea. I don't know enough, <laughs> frankly, to know if, I mean, the lyrics are clearly about his faith. You yeah. know, that, that is, there's no question. They're obviously about him struggling with his faith, but I have no idea if, there's a direct, if the whole pillow willow thing is liturgically significant or if Uh that's just, or what, I'm not sure what that's supposed to be a metaphor for, if it relates to the Bible or church or whatever, but it works. You know, it absolutely works for me. Well, and just like the lyrics, I walked through the door and took a seat, listening to words that seemed to bounce right off my chest. Like I'd heard it all before teaching an old dog, the same old trick. Yeah. Like great, you know, great stuff there, which you know, again, these these are lyrics that take the music away and read through the lyrics, and there's still some great stuff in there for you, which I think, you know, is the mark of great lyrics. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and the second verse, I ate the crumbs and I spilled the wine, the thought that counts. <sighs> That's harsh, man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not even a believer, and I'm like, oh, that stings. That is, like, <laughs> really But <harsh."> how <laughs> awesome is it that here you have, I mean, this guy who's literally laying out for you, the listener, his uh, struggles with faith, his struggles with his own sexuality, his struggles with their career at this point in time. I mean, like, um, and not not necessarily doing it for you, but willing to put himself out there in that yeah. way. You know what I mean? That's uh, it's kind of amazing. It is, yeah. As I say, it's really you know absolutely earns its place as the closer track, and definitely one of the three top tracks on the album for me. Um, but not the final track technically because. We do have track 14, which is uh, a cover of the Jimi Hendrix song Manic Depression. thematically is a 100% perfect fit for everything <laughs> yeah. that we've heard before on this album. And, and I think a pretty good cover of it too. I was never a huge Jimi Hendrix fan. Um, this song is, I could take it or leave it, but my, my only real knock against it is that you just had an amazing finishing song. And so I don't, I would be fine with this song not being there. Well, or, or have, And actually, you know, I was just about to say, or have, uh, you know, do the whole hidden track thing and have a period of like, you know, three minutes silence before. I would like that. But it's just occurred to me, of course, because we're listening to this on MP3s. Maybe on the CD, that was the case. I don't know. Uh, You know, maybe on the actual release, that was how they did it. And if If they did, that was the right way to do it. You are totally 100% correct. This is a great secret track. 
Right. If anybody out there has the original CD, could they, you know, let us know if that's what they did? Because if they did, you're right. That's yeah. But if they didn't, then I, I agree that it, it's kind of a shame uh, because it is a great cover. I am a big Jimi Hendrix fan, and this is a great cover. This, you know, my grand unified theory of cover versions, yep. this, fo- this falls under the just do it absolutely faithfully and be almost better than the original. Be brilliant. It falls into that category because this is a fantastic cover, clearly played by, you know, extraordinarily talented musicians with clearly a lot of love. You can feel the love of the original coming through in this. Um, And Manic Depression is a great Jimmy track as well. It's, you know, it's a classic for a reason. Um, I had no idea that it wasn't actually live. Uh, until uh, if you somebody listen with headphones, you'll you'll notice that the crowd oh, noise really? is kind of pumped in. Um, right. But yeah, uh, but yeah okay. I agree with you. Great, great cover. But yeah, the the fake live processing or whatever is actually to me anyway was like fully convincing. It well, and I until... think the way they play off of it, you know, like the way he starts yes, the song is yes. kind of like you know, like they're. They're but you almost hear the band tuning up as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you know that that's really good. But that aside, it is it is a great cover version. But I agree, it's a shame almost that it comes after what is an excellent, excellent closing track. Because it's so, so hard to stick the landing on an album, right, with your track listing yep. and stuff like that. So they did, and then they got a cover song after it, which again, not a bad cover song. But man, you just stuck the landing. Yeah, yeah, it is uh, very odd. Um, so overall, uh, and I mentioned that I'd sort of come back to this when we when we introduced the album, what I would say for me about this album is I, I'm going to keep it in my rotation. I'm not, you know, sort of getting rid of it. Um, but I think this is an album for me that the, the sort of the sort of kind of intense repeated listening that we do for the show, I think actually for me doesn't benefit an album like this. I just, what I'm going to do is not listen to it for several weeks, maybe a couple of months, and then come back to it. And I I have a suspicion that when I do that, I will find bits of it have stuck in my mind more than they have now. Do you know what I mean? I'll start I listening to know what you mean. certain tracks and go, oh yeah, I remember that bit, and start nodding along. And I think it will benefit from that. Because there are a few albums that I really like, that I've come to really like over the years, that I like that, that I listened to at first and was like, eh, it's sure. okay put them aside and then come back to them a couple of months later. And that almost familiarity has helped me get more into them. And I, I, so I'm going to see if that happens with this album as well. My suggestion and my hope is that when you do come back to it in a couple of months, you come back to it with your headphones and let those, uh, I just, I can't wait to hear what you think of that. All right, I will. I will do that, and I will report back at some point. <laughs> awesome, but great listener pick, man. This this was a good yeah. one to discuss in uh, an album that I really, really enjoyed. And for me, um, you know, we talked about how people think of this album as a departure. Like this is how I want to think of King's X. I I love this album. Yeah, I, I would say so too. Yeah, like I said, I was kind of almost disappointed to learn that this is regarded as their heaviest album because I, you know, I would actually like to hear an album's worth of tracks that all sound more like Pillow, Dogman, and Human Behavior. Uh, I think if they if they had made an album that where the whole thing was consistently more like those tracks, I would actually be really into it. Yeah. Um, so if, for me, it's a shame that they didn't. But yeah, I you know again, this is like the couple- reverse Metallica for me, where like I didn't 
Like with Metallica, it's like, no, 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 listen to the early albums. That's what you got to listen to right. here. And this is like my Enter Sandman where I'm like, okay, this is exactly what I want from King's X now. Yep, yep. No, no more and no less. Yep. Um, yeah, it's, uh, but like I said, there were only like two, maybe three tracks on the on the album that I actively were like, yeah, you know, this does nothing for me. Most tracks I found something, you know, more than one thing to like about them. So totally. yeah, I, I was glad to, and like I said, I had no prior experience with them whatsoever. So I was very glad to give it a listen and, you know, sort of broaden my horizons, yep. as it were. So uh, with that... We'll close out before we do the homework. We'll come to that in a moment. And I'll just quickly say thank you to everyone for listening. And remember, if you enjoy the show, please spread the word, rate us on iTunes our, or the Google Play podcast store, whatever that's called. Uh, and you can support us directly, of course, at patreon.com slash thrash it out. If you want to get in touch, go to thrash com for links to email uh, for me and Brian and also the show email. Uh, sorry, I should say, and Twitter for me and Brian. Um, uh, the links are all there on the homepage. And of course, you can join the Facebook group at Facebook. I'll start that again. You can join the Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Uh, so homework, we are back to our own choices. Which is your, this is your choice, right? And it is my choice. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> it's good because I didn't come prepared. <laughs> that's okay oh i've already got like the this volume i've got my choices already in place um so uh it's just a matter of like what order i do them in now so what i'm going to do especially after the last couple of albums we've had is we are going to go rather heavier uh probably surprising no one but nevertheless we are going to go rather heavier for the next show and we are going to talk about slipknot's debut album self-titled wow. debut album just called slipknot which was released in i believe late 1999 uh and yeah that, because remember my theme for this volume is albums that changed metal sure. and you, you there is you know love it or hate it there is no denying that slipknot's first album was a sea change for metal as a whole and you can argue about you know corn's influence on slipknot and all that sort of thing sure. and yes we'll get into that in the show but you know, I was there, <laughs> you know, and also at the time when Slipknot's first album came out, I was involved a little in some of the heavy metal press and I saw the shockwaves moving through the industry at that first album and the just sheer number of copycat bands and the influence it yeah. had on so much that came afterwards. Uh, and it also happens to be one of my favorite albums, which is a nice coincidence. But regardless of that, yeah, you know, it is such an important album in the modern history of metal. So we are going to talk about that next time. And I cannot wait. I am really excited about that because I have very little experience with Slipknot. I think Iowa is the name of one of their albums, right? That's the second album. Yeah. Okay. So I have heard Iowa. My sister years ago dated a guy who was big into Slipknot and I missed them completely the first time around. So he tried to get me into listening to Slipknot, and I think he gave me Iowa, and I had listened to it a few times, and I kind of dug it, but I don't think I've ever listened to the first album in its entirety, if at all. Uh, but I know that Slipknot, you know, what they mean to the landscape of music, so I'm excited to dig into that one. This is a band that I have very little experience with. Fantastic. All right, so we will see you all for that episode. Until next time, uh, take care of yourselves and keep thrashing. Take care. Take care.